You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Father, now uh, open our hearts to receive your word, especially the glorious news of what happens on the other side of a Christian death, Lord. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in the second of several weeks in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, which is a very long chapter, dealing with the topic of resurrection. And last week we saw Paul's basic assertions related to the fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, First of all, the evidence of witnesses, up to over 500 people who've had an encounter with the risen Lord, including Paul, the author himself, Uh, who had an encounter with the risen Lord, and Paul, uh, the least likely candidate, uh, went from, as he's described in Acts chapter 9, verse 1, as having breathed threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Uh, This happened uh, before his encounter. goes from that to the description he gives of himself uh, last week in verse 10, but by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. And so this is some of the evidence, the transformed life of Paul himself and all the 500 plus witnesses. And the other assertion related to the resurrection he gave that we saw last week is that it's according to scriptures. According to which scriptures? Well, all they had uh, were the Old Testament scriptures. And uh, you could point to specific places in the scriptures, but it's probably more likely what Paul's talking about is similar to what Jesus himself said In Luke 24, after he was risen from the dead, to two of his disciples, where he began with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So not only were there sufficient eyewitnesses, but this was also expected and promised beforehand. Uh, In our uh, opening verse today, uh, verse 12, we see a misunderstanding related to the resurrection at the time. So he's given the assertion last week and up to verse 11 about the resurrection, and now he gets into some arguments about it because of some misunderstandings. And the the misunderstanding this week uh, says this, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, and we're not talking about metaphorically, but historically, actually, that this man came back to life, uh, not just spiritually, but in the body. He says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? What's he talking about here? Uh, This means that there were people in Corinth who seemed to say like we do on Easter day, Alleluia, Christ is risen, and yet they didn't believe in the general concept of resurrection, that uh, dead people come back to life in bodies. Maybe they believed in the specific resurrection of Jesus Christ, but they didn't understand or proclaim the resurrection of all Christ followers. And that's what resurrection means. It means not just coming back to life spiritually, but rising again bodily. And the general resurrection was anticipated by Jews at the time. In the Old Testament, you see this, uh, you could point to some places, for example, like Ezekiel 37 with the Valley of the Dry Bones, which probably was referring to uh, uh, Israel coming back from exile in Babylon to Jerusalem. But there's also language like this. After the story of the Valley of Dry Bones, God says, I will open your graves and raise you 
from your graves, O my people. And in Hosea 6, he says, I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. Death, where are your plagues? Sheol, where is your sting? This is why Martha, who is in our gospel passage today, uh, this isn't in the passage, it's elsewhere in John, but Martha, when talking to Jesus about her dead brother Lazarus, uh, that Jesus will bring, bring him back to life, she, not understanding what he was talking about, she said, thinking of the general resurrection, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So this was a general hope that the Jews had at the time, and Jesus confirmed uh, this to be true with his very own rising from the grave. So let's go back to the main point here uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and these verses that we have today that some in Corinth did not believe this. This is because they weren't Jews, they were Greco-Roman converts to be followers of Jesus Christ, so they brought with them their Greek philosophical mindset, their Greek worldview. They brought their cultural baggage into their discipleship. Uh, They hadn't, as Paul says in Romans uh, chapter 12, they hadn't yet renewed their minds on this concept related to death and what happens to uh, followers of Christ when they die, because Greeks saw death as a release from the body, that the material world was something to be escaped, and the eternal hope for them was to be disembodied spirits, that this was the ideal. This is why Paul said back in chapter one of our letter that the message of Christ is foolishness to the Greeks. So uh, the first half of our passage today, verses 12 through 19, are all a logical argument against this, showing the stupidity of their understanding related to the resurrection, about how ridiculous it is for any to believe in the resurrection of Christ and not in the general resurrection as well, Um, that we are most to be pitied if we don't believe in this, if all we have to hope for is this life alone. Um, If Christ was raised from the dead, so too will those who belong to Christ. Well, uh, In uh, the United States, here and now, for Americans, we have similar problems related to death. Not exactly the same thinking as the Greeks at the time, but we have our own cultural baggage that we bring as Americans into our following of Jesus Christ. And I hear this all the time. I hear it in the church. I hear it with Christians that I speak with. I mean, you you hear this uh, just in everyday conversations, you see this on, uh, in popular media, movies, television, and books, and whatnot, the, w- the ways that people talk about death. And because this is the air that we breathe, we bring our cultural baggage, even as Christians, uh, and confuse our understanding of eternal life, and not always think about it as followers of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to just, there are probably more, but I want to give you the three main ways that I hear people talk about death that are problematic uh, for Christians. The first is passing away or past. Most people, when they speak about someone dying, they say that so-and-so has passed, or they talk about it as passing away. This is probably of the three that I'm gonna highlight today that's the closest to that Greek notion, that's most similar to the, the Greek notion that the Corinthians probably had of escape from, uh, from this life into some spiritual realm. But usually when people are speaking this way, it's pretty vague. Uh, Unlike the Greeks, 
they don't usually have any conviction about it. It's just because that's the way people speak. There's typically no uh, clarity or consist consistency of meaning when people speak of passing away. It's simply a, a euphemism. A euphemism is something that we say to, you know, uh, put lipstick on a pig, right? To, to make something that is not so nice, a taboo topic, uh, sound a little bit nicer. Um, that's because people are afraid of talking about dying or death, that someone has died. Christians should stop saying passing away. We need to call death what it is. It's a terrible thing that was God's curse on fallen humanity. We were never meant to die originally. This is a product of the fall. We were created in God's image, meaning that we're meant to keep living, to go on eternally. But because of our fall, death has now entered the world. This is why, uh, back to the story of Lazarus, this is why Jesus wept when he saw Lazarus' dead body. His friend had just died. He's sad about that. It's a terrible thing. We should be honest about what death is and not paint, pig on, uh, paint lipstick on that pig uh, to create a euphemism around it. But call a spade, what it, a, spade a spade. Call it what it is. Here's the second main way that I hear people talking about uh, death in our society. Uh, a little less common, but still out there. Reincarnation. And this is supposed to be a nice thought, usually when I encounter people talking about it, but that's simply because they're being naive. Well, what would you like to be reincarnated as? I mean, you know, think about it. I was talking to Mike Weeks about it, and he said, I'd like to be a bird. And I said, that's a really good idea. I, if I were going to be reincarnated, I'd be a peregrine falcon, you know, because they're the fastest animal on earth. They could dive bomb at 200 miles an hour to catch a pigeon. I mean, how cool would that be? But it's actually a terrible idea to be reincarnated. I'm a person. If I want to fly, I can go faster than the, the speed of sound in an airplane, you know? I don't need to be a peregrine falcon. Um, it's, it's a terrible curse, actually. When Americans are talking about it, they don't understand the Eastern spirituality from which reincarnation comes. Reincarnation is a sort of perpetual cycle for people to be perfected. Uh, and this could go on for th thousands, maybe millions of years, perpetually reincarnated until you finally reach perfection and then escape the material world, just like that Greek notion, uh, to be uh, living in nirvana or whatever it is. Uh, but I've actually heard Christians talk about reincarnation. People have, talk have asked me about it. Uh, it is not a Christian concept. That's not what we see in our passage today. Christians should stop talking about reincarnation. Here's the third one, and people don't use this term, but the category is annihilation. In everyday conversation, they won't use that word, but that's basically what they're talking about. This is the belief that death is the end, full stop, that this life is all there is, and this annihilationism is a growing conviction, and that's because there's a rise of atheism, materialism, that materialism is the thought that all that there is in existence is what we can see, uh, it's a nihilist position. It, it, it says basically that this life is meaningless, that all there is is this and nothing beyond. Uh, some also have a sort of half-hearted uh, annihilationism that goes like this, that yes, good people will go on living after death, they'll go to some place like heaven, uh, whatever that is, and good people, whoever they are, but bad people just simply uh, stop existing. 
But according to the Bible, annihilation is not the future for any of us. We go to one of two places when we die, all people. So Christians should stop being uh, annihilationists. So what should Christians talk about instead when it comes to death? Well, as I said, verses 12 through 19 give the logical case about the, the ridiculousness around denying the general resurrection if you proclaim the specific resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verses 20 through 28 give a description of what is in store at least for those who belong in Christ. That those who've died have merely fallen asleep and this is not a euphemism. Passing away may be a euphemism, but the New Testament talks about uh, those who belong to Christ as falling asleep, to wake back up again. That when you fall asleep tonight, you're going to go to sleep in anticipation to wake up the next morning, aren't you? For the most part. Um, for most of your life, when you go to sleep, you just take for granted that you're going to wake back up again. And this is the way that a Christian death is described here. This is a, a beautiful image. And we have assurance that this is true because Christ was the first to go to sleep, as it were. And he woke up again. And 500 people witnessed it. He was the first fruits, Paul says, which is an agricultural way of, of saying he's the, um, the uh, at a harvest, the, the first fruits show you, give you a guarantee of which fruits are to come later in the harvest, what they'll taste like, what they'll be like. This is like, if you know um, real estate terms, this is like earnest cash, you know, uh, putting down the down payment because more money is going to come. That Christ's death is the sort of earnest payment for us to guarantee that we too will rise like him. In verses 24 through 28, Paul describes the order of how these things will take place in history. And it won't happen all at once. Uh, there's an order of things. And included in that order is justice. Justice will be served. He will destroy every rule and every authority and power, all things will be in subjection under his feet. And that is not annihilation. He's not saying that those people are going to be destroyed themselves, but their power and authority and rule is going to be taken away. Uh, all authority, especially those who have been using it for ill, but all authority will be given to him. That means that the Pol Pots, the Adolf Hitlers, you know, the, the boss or whoever has harassed you in your life, all of them are going to meet the Lord and will call him Lord. Most importantly, the, the rule, authority, and power of death itself will be destroyed. And this is a great hope for those who belong to Christ, that we don't pass away, but we go to sleep to wake up once and for all. We're not reincarnated, but are always ourselves. Our bodies are given back to us and perfected just as Christ was. And we are not annihilated, but we are made alive, truly alive, in a way that we've never experienced before. And finally, in the end, even Christ himself will be in subjection to God the Father. That's because God the Father is both the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and this is good news. Yes, Jesus is still equal in deity, but not in authority and rule. Um, all things are in subjection to the Father. He will hand over even his own authority to the Father, who is our loving Heavenly Father. 
All the other authorities in this life might not be that, but we know that the the one under whom uh, we will live is one who loves and cares for us. And so that's why he says at the very end that this God is all and uh, in all. This doesn't mean some sort of pantheistic thing that we're all going to come together in some sort of uh, mush. Uh, he's, He's just describing that all will be under subjection of God the Father. And this is good news, uh, a great hope uh, for those who belong to Christ, that we have a loving Heavenly Father who is our eternal authority. This is assurance of no more death, no more tears, and no more oppression. Well, what do you make of all this? What do you personally, truly make of all this? Does it mean anything for your life now? Personally, I wish this news were more at the forefront of my own mind. This is an increasing prayer of mine that these realities, these truths, these hopes uh, would sink down into my being and I would think about it more and more, that it would be guiding for my life now. I don't do it enough to know that uh, I will live eternally with God in my body and in a material world that is perfected, a new creation, a new order, under a loving king. When I die, I'm going to enter like a second birth canal, basically. In the same way that when I came to life in this world, I uh, went through that first birth canal and on the other end met my earthly father, that death will be like that for me and on the other end I will meet my heavenly father. Is this true for you? What does this mean for you? That resurrection isn't a metaphor, but the real deal. We don't have hope in this life only, but in the life to come. And this life, therefore, is a mere opening chapter to your life in all eternity. So please stop living like it's not true. And please stop talking about passing away. First of all, be honest about the horror of death, that it was never meant to be, and yet have assurance that someone went first There was a guy who went first, and he came out on the other side. Sixteen years ago, I was traveling in uh, rural northern Spain, backpacking. I have this funny, vivid uh, memory that will never leave me of this. When I was walking around in northern Spain, there were always cows, and you'd, you'd turn a corner and you'd run into these massive cows just sort of roaming around. I wasn't used to it as a city boy, and that's just not the way they do things in the States, you know, but they're just like chickens and cows walk in the streets. And there was this little old lady who was probably about four feet tall with these massive cows, and she had this stick and, you know, a dozen cows and was hitting one of them on the rump and saying, Baka Bane, Baka Bane, which means, come on, cow, come on, cow. Do you know the difference between a cow and a sheep? There are a lot of differences between cows and sheep, but when it comes to herding them, cows are driven from behind. They're goaded to go through a gate or wherever you want to get them. But sheep follow a shepherd through the gate. They know their shepherd, they know his voice, and they follow him. Well, you have a good shepherd who has gone through the gate of death before you. So don't be a cow, but be a sheep and follow the Good Shepherd. Let's pray.
Father, we praise you and thank you that you've given us glimpses into what is in store for us in places of the scriptures, like here in 1 Corinthians 15, that this understanding of the reality of death and not just the grave, but life to come uh, as uh, followers of your son would be ever present for our lives here and now. Make that true for us every day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.